the country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomsa from La Trobe University. Today we are talking about inclusivity in the Indonesian education sector, especially with regards to the rights of people with a disability. My guest in this episode is Dr. Dina Afrianti, a research fellow in the La Trobe Law School in Melbourne and a founder of the Australia-Indonesia Disability Research and Advocacy Network, or ADRAN, which will be launched in Melbourne on the day this podcast is going online, that is the 11th of October. The new network aims to provide new opportunities for engagement and collaboration between activists, academics and policymakers working on disability and social inclusion. Dina herself has conducted extensive research on disability-related reforms in the education sector, and in today's podcast we are going to discuss some of these reforms, especially those driven by Islamic education providers. Dina, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dirk. Yeah, Dina, I met you recently in Canberra at the Indonesia Update Conference, and there you presented your work at the conference, which was themed on the place of minorities in Indonesia. So in order to give us an idea of the size of the community we are talking about today, can you tell us roughly how many people with a disability there are in Indonesia? Are there actually any reliable statistics available? This is actually one of the biggest questions that policymakers and also disability activists and also researchers in Indonesia are struggling. Uh, the number is not uniform. Among the ministries, for example, they have different accounts of how many people with disabilities are in Indonesia. For example, the Ministry of Health will have a different numbers with the Ministry of Social Services. And the problem is due to the way disability is being understood. And this is also related to the previous regulations on this. In the past, Indonesia understood disability mainly as handicaps. So the reference is for people with physical disabilities rather than including other types of disabilities. But the recent 2012 survey on social economy predicted that about 2.45% of Indonesians have disabilities. Other data also mentioned it's about 4.3% of Indonesians living with disabilities, which means around 10 to 12 million Indonesians live with disabilities. Okay. And uh, this was the result of the um, census or was this a different survey conducted by whom? Yeah. So this is based on the surveys by the by the BPS, Badan Pusat Statistics, and also based on the result uh, survey by the Ministry of Health, okay. which have already included the new definition of disabilities. That means they have included uh, not just the physical disabilities, but also mental disabilities and also psychological disabilities. Okay. Now I'd like to ask, about the broader context and the overall status of um, people with a disability in Indonesian society. Um, just to put that a bit in, into context, because in many countries, people with disabilities face various forms of stigma, discrimination. What's the situation like in Indonesia? Is it similar there or are there specific perceptions towards people with a disability? In Indonesia, I think the status of persons with disabilities is much worse than what you can see, for example, in Australia, but probably quite similar to what 
people with disabilities are experiencing in other developing countries. The problem is the social stigma and also the discrimination emanates from the way uh, disability is understood within the religious communities and also that there are cultural perceptions that see disabilities as a sin. So you mentioned religion mm. and culture as factors influencing stigma and discrimination. Obviously, Indonesia is a Muslim-majority country, 90% Muslims, and there's a perception that Indonesia has been becoming increasingly conservative in recent years. So to what extent does religion affect the perceptions of people with a disability? For example, yeah. are there actually references to people with a disability in their holy texts, in the Quran or in other um, religious texts? Yeah. I should say that it's actually not a specific problem for Indonesia because a similar problem is also found in other in other societies and in other religious traditions. And there have been a lot of research that have been done on this. There is no values or teachings within the Holy Quran or in the Hadith, the Prophet sayings that says that people with disabilities should be marginalized or should be treated differently. But there are some traditional religious books which is widely used in the traditional Islamic boarding schools like Pesantren and they have also said that disabilities as a result of certain wrongdoings for the parents that they you know, perform during the sexual intercourse between uh, the couples. There have been a number of research conducted by Indonesian academics and researchers on this particular topic, and they have found that people who read and understood about disabilities from these teachings do have certain perceptions towards people with disabilities. And the other thing is, uh, we also need to look at the history of the Indonesian government policy towards people with disabilities. The New Order government, for example, introduced a segregative policies that tried to separate children with disabilities, not to go to the, the same school with uh, the Abel body uh, children. And this continually strengthened the perceptions and the discrimination towards disability. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned um, regulations from the New Order period. As far as I know, these regulations have now been overhauled or have um, for quite a while. But most recently, in 2016, the National Parliament in Jakarta actually passed a new law on disability rights, providing the community with a new legal framework that they can use, basically, for their activist struggle. The law changes the way the community is being treated from more of a sort of patronizing charity aid kind of approach towards a more rights-based approach. Was it difficult to get this law through and what does it really entail in detail? Um, I'm not familiar with the details so maybe yeah. you can give us a bit of an example of what the law is trying to achieve. It was very difficult actually for the government to finally deliberate the legislation in 2016 and some of the activists within the disability advocates are still not very happy with some of the provisions. But at least as a start, it's a good thing because it requires all government institutions and also civil society organizations to change their approach in terms of enhancing the rights of persons with disabilities. And the law covers a number of aspects, including education and also the rights to performing religious duties, which is quite comprehensive in terms of how 
the legislation requires all elements of the society to provide all this access and also must guarantee the inclusion of people with disabilities from uh, from all aspects of Indonesian development. You mentioned education is in the law as well and access to education has been a key part of the struggle of activists and it's also been a key part of your research. Can you let us know to what extent education plays a role or is mentioned in the law? Education is actually part of the law and in fact There are other national legislation as well as local re- legislation that has been adopted by several provinces in Indonesia that mainly regulate about the need for the inclusion of persons as, or children with disability in schools and universities. The national legislation on national education, for example, this is in, in 2003, it has already uh, regulated that all schools have to provide access for children with disability to study equally with their non-disabled children or students. But in reality, there hasn't been any real action to introduce what inclusive education is. And this is the biggest challenge because in the past, Indonesian government introduced special schools or sekolah luar biasa or school for the abnormal or the, for the spatial. And actually, according to the national legislation on national education, this school should not be just for children with disabilities. The children with disabilities should be going to the mainstream school. The problem is with the special schools, which is only from primary to secondary, children with disabilities study in the, in the special schools. But when they graduate from the school, uh, most of them are not willing to go to universities, knowing that they won't be in a special universities because they are not used to, the situ- to a situation where they can interact or have friends with uh, the able-bodied students. And so that creates fear among the students with disabilities. And this is based on my research that I conducted in South Sulawesi, for example, that graduate from Sekolah Luar Biasa told me that they are reluctant to go to universities knowing that who are going to be my friends in university because my other friends from the Sekolah Luar Biasa, they of, they've already told me they don't want to continue studying. Mm. And the other thing is also because there are strong perception among the graduates from the Sekolah Luar Biasa. Why do I have to go to universities if at the end no one will ever employ me? Mm. Yeah, so the law can be seen as a first step to addressing that, to um, stop the segregation and to make education more inclusive. How have the education providers reacted to that? Presumably they had a stake in um, the formulation of the law. Um, have they supported this and welcomed this introduction or have they tried to oppose it? From our research, it is very clear that education providers have neglected this and many of them actually justified their policies because there is no adequate funding, for example, or because there are other regulations that prohibit us to provide access. The State Islamic University in Jakarta, for example, some of their buildings are not accessible. And they said, because we are not permitted to have a lift, is the building only has four stories. And if we are asking to build a five-story building, that means we need to put a different uh, permission We have to go through all different requirements and, you know, 
So all those sort of things. So in your research, you look at Islamic higher education institutions and how they have responded to the changes. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about this? Uh, what role have they played? What initiatives have they taken? And to what extent are they facing obstacles and challenges or even resistance from, for example, the Ministry of Religious Affairs? Yeah. Well, my research on this is really driven by reports from the media. And when I was still in Indonesia, I've heard how a number of Islamic tertiary education rejected the application of students with disabilities. And most of them actually for uh, those who have visual impairment. Those who have visual impairment actually wanted to go to, to, to study at the Faculty of Education because they wanted to become a teachers. And their applications were, were rejected by these institutions, saying that to be a teacher, one cannot be blind. And then I heard that other universities, which is not under the Ministry of Religion, accepted the application of students with visual impairment or with, uh, with other types of disabilities. And so I asked, actually, the authority at the Ministry of Religion, and they couldn't really come up with an answer. The answer that they've already given to me is that, ah, I think because it will be difficult for them to interact with their students if they become a teachers. And I said, but why other universities accepted the application of students with disabilities and uh, for, for those who are visually impaired? And, you know, it was a silent answer. Uh, and so that's really the issue that prompted me to ask for the questions and And then I've started to look at what are the universities within the Ministry of Religion that have at least understood what their obligation in terms of providing access and opportunity and to promote inclusion. And one of the positive examples that, that can be mentioned here is the effort by the State Islamic University in Yogyakarta. It was in 2007 that they started to establish Center for Disability Services knowing that they have students with disabilities who are enrolled in the university. And so until 2017, UIN Yogyakarta is the only state Islamic university within the Ministry of Religion that have been uh, trying to promote inclusion in the university. Why only one? I think it has something to do with the initiative that comes from within the university because there hasn't been any regulation within the Ministry of Religion that requires all universities to be inclusive and providing equal access and opportunity for students with disabilities. Mm. And you said that started in 2007, yeah. so that was also way before the yeah. law was passed. Yeah. So it was certainly not a response to an to the new law, but yeah. rather came from inside yeah. um, the university. Yeah. So since the law has been passed, now that we have legal incentives to do something, um, have other universities followed the example of the State Islamic University in Yogyakarta, or is it still really only that one standing out that is... Yeah. Well, there have been some positive response from other tertiary Islamic education. In Jakarta uh, last year, the State Islamic University in Jakarta finally established the Center for Disability Research, and they've already started to introduce what inclusion means to the staffs and also the academics and researchers at the university and also in Banda Aceh as well. And in Semarang, the EIEN Institute Agama Islam Negeri Semarang, they've already also started to adopt and 
learn about what is being inclusive. It's been slow, but I'm quite positive there will be more initiatives coming from uh, the Ministry of Religion. And it has also something to do with the advocacy that disability rights advocates have been doing. And so I guess that's, that's a good sign. And now that in your research you focus specifically on that um, part of the sector, the Islamic universities, but do you have any information whether there are differences between the public uh, state universities and the Islamic universities? Well, I think the major difference is the fact that funding for Islamic education is always less compared to public education institution. This has been always the case in the past, and it has only been recently that actually the Indonesian government started to pay more attention towards the Islamic education sector. And because of that, the Ministry of Religion have been starting to sort of like catching up with the public education sector because they don't want to be seen as second class. And I think it has something to do with the fact that more and more parents wanting to send their children to Islamic education institutions rather than to public institutions. And so there is a market there. And some private Islamic schools, for example, have started to initiate and call themselves as an inclusive schools, knowing that, for example, there are children with autism, for example, and with other psychological disabilities. And so they see this as an opportunity and they want to be quite progressive in terms of providing education for those children with disabilities. In my research, we also find out that there are pesantren in Jakarta and also in Bogor and Depok which have already included inclusion in their uh, curriculum without knowing that actually what they've been teaching or implementing in their academic curriculum is actually what is called inclusion. And the reasons why they are doing this, because they said, because it's in Islamic teachings that we cannot differentiate children who have different abilities. We cannot treat them differently. They are the same. It's only about how you should be providing more help and more access and more opportunities. And one of the pesantren where I did my research in South Jakarta, for example, they hire more more teachers and they ask the teacher to specifically be with the children, with be with the student 24 hours a day. And, and they said, by doing that, they can see progress in terms of how these kids interact with other kids in schools. And also, they said other children finally also can understand that their friends have different ability and that they don't have to treat them differently. So I asked them, do you understand that you've been doing what the government has actually? Oh, we don't know that. And actually, we don't have any funding for the teachers. We asked them to do this because it's part of your religious duties to provide more services to, to students with certain learning difficulties. Well, it's a nice counterbalance, I suppose, to what you had been mentioning early on in the podcast when you said that from a traditional religious point of view, people with a disability are often regarded as problematic, as outcasts um, who have been marginalized. So it's uh, good to hear that these, some of these institutions are actually using religious reasoning in order to provide better education. Do we know, apart from these anecdotes or individual cases, do we know if 
as a whole, the number of children or students with a disability has increased since 2016, since the new law has come into effect? In terms of the number of students with disabilities, do we have data about this? This is another aspect that needs to be researched because, for example, in some universities, they don't really actually put a category of students with disabilities. So that is the reason why it's also difficult to get information or accurate data on how many exactly students with disability are enrolled in universities. And so this is also part of the issues whether education providers should put that as a category, not just gender, but also disabilities and what types of disabilities. Because when you don't have a data, it's quite difficult to address the issues that needs to be addressed in terms of policy and you know other things. My impression is that the positive steps that have been taken over the last few years have been sort of piecemeal, a bit patchy here and there. I mean, it's good that there is a legal framework now in place, but um, implementation has been slow and only a relatively small number of universities or um, other education institutions have actually done something about it. So looking forward from this now, what do you think are the next steps that need to follow? What can activists do? What can advocates do? Um, And what do the education providers need to do? And what does the government need to do? Well, I think the legislation is a very good step. It's It's a milestone, actually. And as with other legislation in Indonesia, I think the main thing is you once you have legislation, the other important thing you need to do is to change the mindset of the people. And that's where my work has been trying to focus on, changing mindset, understanding why such perceptions are present in the communities and how should we best address those perceptions and stigma and stereotyping. And of course, awareness raising and campaigns by advocates is very important. For example, because when you have policies, when you have regulation, but if you don't get the understanding of why you need to provide access, you won't be able to think further of how you should be providing opportunity for people with disabilities. If you travel to Indonesia, you can start looking at buildings, for example. Some buildings actually now, and universities, they have tried to sort of like follow the regulation by building ramps. And by having those ramps, they think they've already been following the legislation, while in fact, if you actually see the ramp is not accessible. (laughs) So those those are the things that, uh, you know, still, I think, why why it happens? Because of those stereotypes, because of the, the lack of understanding. It's not just about building ramps, but do you understand how, you know, those ramps should help uh, persons with disabilities to be independent in terms of uh, making their own movement without getting the help of others, because that's exactly the principle of inclusion, making persons with disability having their own freedom, having their own movement of ind- independent uh, without necessarily getting the help of others. I think that has something to do with mindset. Again, patronizing, thinking that the persons with disabilities can only move around if we help them. But actually, persons with disability, they can move, they can make their own movement. They don't need help. What they need is access and opportunity. And one big opportunity to 
raise awareness and perhaps even to change mindsets um, may come up in October. Right right now, basically, we're recording this on the 4th of October. By the time this goes online, the para games, the Asian para games, would have started in Jakarta. Um, and, of course, most recently we had the Asian games, which were quite successful for the Indonesian government. And now with the para games coming up so shortly afterwards, do you think that perhaps disabled athletes can sort of bandwagon on this success and use this event to actually put themselves at the center of attention, get some media attention perhaps and raise some awareness? Yeah. Are activists um, quite hopeful and positive about this event? Yeah, I think it's a good opportunity actually to sort of like promote wider social inclusion. With the Asian Para Games now, more and more Indonesians understand what disability means and, you know, the campaign by disability rights advocates can also help raise the awareness and understanding of the Indonesians of how they should uh, see persons with disabilities. For example, they have been trying to tell the public that you don't have to say or you don't have to see the disabled athletes as uh, a source of inspiration because if you still have that sort of attitudes and perceptions towards persons with disability, that means you still see persons with disability as different, as special. And this is exactly what my colleague Slamat Tohari said in his opinion piece published at Compass, saying that the Asian Paragames should be an opportunity for everyone to learn better about uh, how enhancing the rights of people with disabilities should not be about treating or perceiving persons with disabilities as special or as a source of inspiration. And in terms of access and infrastructure, I think the Asian Paragames is, is also a good opportunity for the government to sort of like really consider the importance of making sure that their buildings, their public places are accessible. And they have been doing that. And from what I've heard, for example, the Istora Senayan have been quite accessible. The toilets and, you know, all the access, uh, they have paid attention to this. Although there are also some public facilities that, you know, they have ramps, but, you know, it's, it's just not the right one. <laughs> uh, so, of course, there are different opinions among disability rights advocates. Some of them still see this as a failure of the government to ensure that they can access all these public facilities. But others also see it in a more positive way, saying that it's a good start. And especially, it will be a good public campaign in terms of changing the minds and perceptions and attitudes toward persons with disabilities in Indonesia. Yeah. The Power Games, of course, will be a one-off. Yeah. But um, you yourself, perhaps, hopefully, have an opportunity to contribute to this change of mindset through your new Australia-Indonesia Disability Research and Advocacy Network. I hope you will be able to make some good contributions with this network. Um, wish you great success. And I would like to thank you for making the time to speak to us today. So that was Dr. Dina Afrianti from the Latrobe Law School speaking with Dirk Tomsa on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Please join us again on the 25th of October for the next episode of this podcast. You can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. 
or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you.